Welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. I've got David Badil on, a comedian, writer, polemicist. I'm not even entirely. I've never quite known what polemicist means. Is it someone who writes things that are sort of make people think and can be controversial back and forward? I don't know. But he is somebody who I've long been a huge, huge fan of. He's been on the show before, um, and I'm really, really grateful that he came back on. He's just written a book called The God Desire, which at the very beginning I say, so you wrote The God Delusion? And he says, no, that's Richard Dawkins. Uh, but we've left that in, I think. So, yes, he's written a book about atheism, okay? And I know a lot of my listeners, a lot of my viewers are not atheists. Uh, they might be agnostics or they might be believers and everybody is welcome. And I think that's the point of David's book as well, that he has a lot of respect for religion and he loves the idea of God and the story of Christianity. And it's a really refreshing look at these things. And we discussed today some quite bleak things, but also, you know, how to think about our own mortality. And we have a lot of jokes and laughs and things along the way just to sort of punctuate the the sadness with glee <laughs> i suppose i really hope you guys enjoy this one like he, he really is uh, someone i look up to a lot and I'm, I'm really happy to have spoken to please do go out and get his book it is i when i say this i mean this in the best possible way it's it's a short book as was his last book Jew, jews don't count uh which was about uh sort of the social wokeness and maybe well not so much about that but about how jews are not sort of considered by the the left to be the left to be victims and things like that this book is about atheism of course but it's short and funny and it was just it's a breeze to read but also very intelligently written so go out and get the god desire go and get that book um and Yes, lots of big episodes are coming up. Anke Richter talking about her time uh, sort of journeying through the world of sex cults. That's coming up as well. So lots of big stuff. But now you're on the edge of God and the desire thereof with David Baddiel. I've got David Badil here and I think you guys know I'm a big fan of David's. I have been for a very, very long time. I grew up watching um, Badil and Skinner Unplanned, uh, which I loved and I still get the theme tune in my head sometimes. And we're going to be talking today about David's new book, The God Delusion, which I've just read and absolutely loved. It's not called that. Sorry, that's the Dawkins thing, isn't yeah. it? Is it? Yeah, I think we should keep that in though, because obviously... It's quite close uh, to the God. Yes. It's the God desire. The God desire. Yeah, and it's you, you know what? I spend the whole the whole morning saying to myself, "Don't say the God delusion. Don't say yeah. the God delusion." And I've said it. Yeah, you have said it. I mean, so far, Richard Dawkins has not got in touch, saying essentially, "You're piggybacking off me. You're breaking the Trades Descriptions Act. People are clearly buying this, thinking it's by me." Uh, it's finally called <laughs> that because I wanted to call it that, and I thought well, it doesn't matter. Richard Dawkins has written a much more famous book. But also, it's making a point about how my book is a kind of like separate thing to the way that most uh, atheists discuss this issue. So I've deliberately, cheekily, slightly mimicked the title but changed it. Before I go any further, people will be watching this, right? It's not just on audio. Uh, yeah, they're watching as well. Absolutely by chance. I just seem to have chosen a greyer version of what you're wearing. But uh, Yes. I mean, it's sort of absurd. We're both wearing a check shirt, but you've got very dark hair, very healthily dark hair, uh, which I go to assume is not dyed. I'm not even going to suggest that. Uh, whereas I'm grey and I'm wearing a grey shirt. I just look like a weird, you know, negatived out version of you. you know? God, you you look like a, you, well, maybe me in a bit. And it's actually funny because that's, that's funny for two reasons. Because firstly, a friend of mine um, has has often said to me, oh, you look like you're David Baddiel. You're going to look like, as you, you know, in a nice way. And also, because I was saying to my girlfriend before, I get a little bit nervous interviewing you. And I was going to just say, I've got Richard Dawkins tomorrow. And most people I interview are so, not, not so famous and things. So I get a bit nervous. And so she chose what I was wearing. She said, David Baddiel will like that. Well, she's obviously right. She's more right than she knows because she what I've got <laughs> for a start. So and I think last time, you're, you don't really look like me because you're handsome. Uh, I mean, I'm... You're and, handsome. No, I'm sort of like handsome enough. And actually, my son, who's 18, thinks I look better now than I did like 10, 15 years ago, which may be just him being nice to me, but he's not. He certainly <laughs> doesn't try and be nice to me. Uh, so who knows? I think I just look fairly old. But you, yeah, I've said this to you about before, Andrew, is that you're a sort of heartthrob. Uh, oh, come now. No one's ever said that except you. I've said it again. Okay. <laughs> again, you've got a special place in my heart. Are you really interviewing Richard Dawkins tomorrow? 
tomorrow in person i'm going down to london to oh. interview him uh, and is that like why why are you going down to london to interview me we wouldn't do it over the no, I tried to get you in person as well. It's just, it's nicer to get people, well, especially because I can make sure, I don't know how good Richard Dawkins' webcam and microphone No, you're very are. worried about that, I know. You're very yeah. paranoid about webcams and uh, microphones or whatever. I don't think I've ever seen, because I see clips of your show, and it always seems to be this. I've never noticed you in real life, IRL, conversation with someone before, but that you do that. Uh, yeah yeah not so often because it costs money you know i've got to go and book a studio i've got to do a whole thing i've got to go down to london for the day because i don't live there i don't say where i live anymore because i interview too many ex-scientologists and right. if i say the city i live in then scientologists will know where to find me right so scientologists yeah. that's an interesting one because <laughs> i mean now you know including actually with the god desire because there, there are people who get angry about godlessness but uh you know there are many many things that you can say particularly online that will get certain groups wanting to kill you. Scientologists is like a blast from the past. I, you <laughs> yeah. know, it's been a while since they've been in any way, you know, near the top of that list. Although you may be interested to know that many years ago, Channel 4 asked me to do a uh, sort of thing where I went and hung out with Scientologists. Oh, uh, I was uh, like, re they, they let me in, actually. I was going to go to East Grinstead. Then they were going to let me into the centre in LA. It was going to be an amazing thing. And then it was just about the start of stuff on the internet, and I read some quite frightening things. Uh, and I thought, no, I'm not going to do this, because I am going to take the piss. At the very least, I'm going to take the piss. I doubt yes. I'm going to do a big, full investigative thing about <laughs> David Miscavige's wife or anything like that. But I was going to take the piss, and, I, and it just seemed to me like it's not worth it. I, my kids were young, and I thought, I don't want, I don't want death threats. Uh, I've managed to compile my fair share of death threats elsewhere so <laughs> but you're saying yours is many Scientology is the issue I get a lot from that I won't touch um Islam I'm even scared to say I won't touch Islam even that I'm thinking I don't want to say that but right. it's just for, ob for obvious reasons I just don't I don't want to be killed uh and that's a scary that so that scares footnote, me the footnote in the book do you remember that yes I do footnote <laughs> and I thought the same thing well yeah but I do say it I do yeah. say straightforwardly because i'm very keen you know i, I notice that sometimes i say quite kind of like self-deprecating or vulnerable things even online and people just like you can't really do that people just assume that you're uh, losing in some way if you say something so vulnerable and that's quite a vulnerable moment i think in the god desire is as a footnote that basically says that i occasionally get accused if i'm making fun of another religion christianity mainly like, oh, make a joke about Islam or whatever. And I just say, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to do it because I'm frightened. Yeah, I, I get the same, the same thing. Yeah. And people think, people think it's because we're being woke. They say, oh, you're being so woke, you don't want to attack. Is that, is that, no, we're being scared. scared. I, I really am scared. Yeah, no, of course. We're, of course we're scared. Uh, and I make the point of saying that I wrote The Infidel, but The Infidel, although it does have jokes in it about people who are Muslim, uh, specifically people, it doesn't make any jokes about the, the faith and the sacred anything sacred and that's because i'm frightened um, straightforwardly uh, and the point about that is which is quite a brave thing to say i guess in some way is that the, the christians or whoever it is who are saying that it's not necessarily christians it's just people who want to have a go but they're who are saying oh you're so x y and z it's not an argument for anything it's not an argument for anything except bullying is somehow what they want to be able to do do you see what i'm saying yeah. it's like if you're arguing that somewhere or other attacking Christianity is something I shouldn't do, you're saying, and we should be able to bully you out of that by invoking yeah. that spirit, you know, which is no argument at all. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, uh, it, it is, it is a mess. The, the whole thing that what you can and can't talk about just through fear, I think. Uh, yeah. And as you say, Scientology is almost sort of retro. I don't mean to retro. challenge any Scientologists listening now, but they do tend to sort. They, the worst is they sort of hang out in your trees and look at right. you with binoculars, and they freak you out a bit. They check. I have been told from insiders they are aware of me now, um, and they are they are checking my flights, and that's the one where they are able to see where my name is. So they just follow you and freak you out a bit. Whereas a lot of the the religious stuff can be. Uh, scary you know we've got a lot of other stuff to talk about but I, so you've done quite a lot of stuff about scientology yeah loads loads in scientology and you know when we last spoke about 18 months ago my channel the youtube version yeah. had 1000 subscribers and it's now got 160 or 165,000 or something well done. a lot well, of that well, came well. thank you a lot of that came from talking about 
Tom Cruise and Scientology and now it. lots of other cults. You may, what you should have said was a lot of that came from my conversation with you and all from blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> I, I said, you've done proper kind of deep, like, investigative journalism, have you? Yeah, yeah I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you some, I'll send you some yeah, stuff. Yeah, send me some links. Yeah. yeah, I've become friendly with a lot of ex-Scientologists who are on YouTube themselves, right. and we all talk together about the latest news and what's happened, right. and some of the horrible things that, that goes on there. I think we, let's move away from Scientology itself, but I do think Scientology and a few other things back in the day were examples of where we have ended up, uh, because without social media, they were able to create this climate of fear around what you might or might not say, and and now that you know, that exists all over the place. And it's it's ridiculous to say it doesn't. You know, whatever the rights and wrongs of the free speech conversation, everyone does watch what they say much more than they used to. Everyone monitors what they say. We've created a, technolo a technological self-consciousness around speech, around public speech for everybody. Uh, and that, you know, is the way it is. And lots of people are able to argue, well, you know, there are limits to free speech and consequences of free speech, whatever they say, but, there, but that isn't a way of investigating how, how we live now, which is that there is that self-conscious exists and it changes how people speak. But I would say, yeah, it was a tiny bit happening before with things like Scientology. Yeah, and then that's sort of now we're self-monitoring and being scared a lot. Um, but one thing we don't want to do, obviously, is scare people who are watching and or, or put them off and one thing that does happen when i do scientology is people will comment a lot of people and they'll say oh i can't believe they believe in this stupid lord xenu stuff um unlike the lord gods who i do love and all these things so a lot of people who watch this are actually religious and i was happy reading your book that i don't you, you don't want to alienate those people and what your one of your closest friends i believe frank skinner i'm a big fan of his as well he's a comedian i listened to his absolute radio podcast and he actually mentioned you in your book a few weeks ago when i knew right. i was going to be interviewing you right. and he was again he was sort of fine about it i can't remember what he said but he joked about it i think it. he was but, thinking about yeah. uh no actually uh, he because he told me, I, well, I don't. Well, I listen to his show most Saturdays, but I didn't listen to that one. He still hasn't read uh, the God Desire, and he told me as a joke, but uh, maybe it's true that Jews don't count. My previous book, he thought it was an amazing polemic and very kind of like convincing. And because he's a religious man, and the God Desire for all the fact that it's understanding of the need to want there to be a God. He's at the end of the day fundamentally an atheist piece of work. He, he, I think, is worried that it might, you know, change his mind on that, and he doesn't want his mind changed on that because, you know, because the God desire services, you know, things that are very important to him. Uh, and so, I don't know whether he's read it or not, but I don't think that's what he was saying on his show because I think he was also saying about how we leave books out sometimes. We live in the same road, me and Frank and and, and Morwenna, my wife particularly. It's been tried recently to, like, leave, got too many books, and so she puts them on the wall. And I think that his partner, Kath, picked up a book from the wall. And actually, let me tell you something. I think it was Bridget Christie's book. And he, um, he said about Kath picking up Bridget Christie's book, it had been well thumbed. Now, I'd, he didn't <laughs> actually know whether it had been well thumbed or not. He just didn't want to land me, which is very sweet of him in the situation of having put out Bridget Christie's book without having read it. So he made a point of saying when his wife picked it up, it was well thought, which is very sweet of him. Oh, do you guys, so do you talk, there is a bit in the book about you have a, had a conversation about his concerns about going to heaven and things like that in the car one time. Do you talk about religion and your differences? We did used to a lot when we lived together. Uh, we lived together in a flat by the time we were making fantasy football. And that particular bit, which is... Um, a story I tell in the book is me and him were just getting to know each other. And I think that's quite important in terms of what I'm saying in that I had already decided, oh, this guy is very simpatico with me. He likes football. He's very funny. You know, all the way he talks, it's like we're having such brilliant conversations. That, that thing where you're slightly falling in love with a, a, a friend, right? That was sort of happening. Uh, and then right at the end of that conversation, he starts talking about this deep spiritual anguish he's in because he's divorced and he's Catholic and he can't take communion, so he can't get absolution and blah, blah, blah. It goes on for a while, and it's quite tortuous. At the end of that, I say, well, sorry, why are you bothered about all that? And he says, no, you don't understand. I think I will burn in hellfire. And I've never heard anyone say that, seriously, because I don't live in 1603. And so I, 
I the, the, my, that point. I make the point about that. You know, essentially, to make the point, it's just slightly self-aggrandizing, but it's it's true. Which is that did not make me think. Oh, I, I don't. He's an idiot. I don't want anything to do with him. It made me think. That's really interesting. It's really interesting that someone so intelligent and so clever and so witty and all the rest of it thinks that thinks something so different from the way that I think. Which is very much not the way that social media teaches us to behave with people. Which is the minute someone says something that you really don't believe, they are persona non grata, and there's no conversation left. I thought, no, it deepened this relationship we're about to start, which seems to be going very well. It deepens it that there's a corner of it feels like in my terms completely mad but really interesting and why does he think that what's what's in his upbringing what's in his life that makes him think that why does he believe in magic you know that's the thing and i think that's interesting um and so we did yeah we continued our conversations he also said another thing later on in in our conversations uh, for me is the best argument i've ever heard for the existence of god because it's not an argument and it was that sometimes when he does take communion, and by the way, Frank got his marriage annulled by the Pope. Uh, our wow. Conversation. He actually, yeah, you can do that. He was married <laughs> by the Pope, which means he's now fine because it's, it's adultery. Uh, you can't get divorced in the Catholic Church. So living with his girlfriend, he was committing adultery. That's why he couldn't get. I, do I have to explain it anymore? I can't be bothered. Oh, I get it. Like, basically, he was fine. Uh, and then much later on, he said that sometimes when he does take, Community when he puts the wafer in his mouth, um, he feels God. He just, I mean, he said all the doubts, all the logic, all the reason fall away, and he feels God to be, he feels in the presence of God. And for me, that's a really good, it's not argument is the wrong word, existential reason to believe in God, because I can't argue against that, that there is no logic and reason to that. And that's the only, for me, the only reason to believe in God if you feel that stuff. Yeah, well, you know, it makes sense. And but I also think, I mean, you said in I th- right, I read your book. I read the books at like three in the morning, and I make notes. And I can't remember if it's something you said or that I sort of wrote. Uh, but it w- would you describe yourself as an, an atheist who loves God, or at least the idea of God? Yeah, I mean, I do say that. I mean, I don't. I mean, to say that I love it's a slightly deliberately provocative thing. Say I'm an atheist who loves God. Uh, what I mean is, and this is what the book is about, uh, that I. Um, I'm not that bothered about all the sort of slightly dry evidence-based arguments for the existence of God, like what was there before the Big Bang or why is there evil in the world, all those things. What I'm interested in is what you might call the motivation. Because this is a, if God is a crime, right? There's no evidence for the crime, but there's lots of evidence for the motivation. And the motivation is we are frightened of death, of meaninglessness, of the death of our loved ones of the fact that life seems to just go on without any pattern or justice or whatever, we would much prefer it to have meaning and story and for it to continue and not to have the terrible pain of oblivion waiting for us. So we've, so I feel those things. A lot of atheists pretend they don't or say they don't. Maybe they really don't. But there's a great tradition, and I quote Bertrand Russell, saying, my ego and my body will rot after I'm dead. And I scorn, he says, I scorn anyone who would shiver at the thought of oblivion. And my book is, no, no, I'm shivering all the fucking time. I'm <laughs> shivering all the fucking time. Uh, and I'm terrified of those things. And because I'm terrified of those things, I know that one way out of that would be to believe in God. And that leads me to believe that God is wish fulfillment on a massive yeah. scale. And that's what the book's about. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. I suppose there is an outside chance that God is both wish fulfillment. So it's obviously very, you know, you know, uh, it's, it's how likely is that? You know, it's just that the thing we happen to want is the thing that is there and then also could exist just by coincidence. That is an outside chance. Well, actually, there's a bit in the book. It's actually a writer, a brilliant writer called Jonathan Saffron Fur. I, I, I was sort of writing the book. And he's a big fan of Jews Don't Count. And I was doing a documentary with him in it. Uh, well, I'd gone to America and he said to me something which I hadn't really thought, which is, yeah, but the trouble is things that you want can exist, right? You Sometimes you, <laughs> you want food and it appears. Sometimes you want sex and it happens or whatever. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, but so when I, I, che- I, I, I produced this fix for that, which is, you know, fair, I'm not bothered about massive metaphysical arguments. I produced a short fix for that. Which is, yes, but those things clearly do exist. They clearly exist. We have existential, evidential, you know, we know that water exists. We've touched it. Uh, this is for a, this is a deep, deep desire for something that there's no evidence for. And actually I use this slightly impressionistic point about that, which is, yeah, when a man is in the desert, he knows that water exists somewhere. He's seen it come out of taps. But what he conjures in his mind is a mirage of an oasis, which doesn't exist. And God is a bit more like that. God is something you deeply desire, and so you create it in your mind, or, or we create it en masse in our minds. And that's really what the book's about. I love the idea that um, the idea that uh, things you want to exist might actually exist is, yeah. is foreign to you. <laughs> it is slightly foreign to me. I also talk about this thing. A.A. A. Gill, the uh, now no longer with us, critic and writer, I met him once, and he was he's a Christian, or was a Christian, and was slightly scornful of this, and said, oh, I want it so it can't be true. He said, that's so Jewish, which was an interesting, slightly anti-Semitic thing to say, because I think, like, what's Jewish about that? Uh, and then I thought, no, you just bundle everything that a Jew says, comes out of their mouth into their Jewishness, which is a kind of, you know, again, typical Jews don't count thing. You would not say to a black person that's so black about uh, a thought that was just an, a philosophical thought. Uh, but either way, uh, yeah, no, he he didn't like that. But, I mean, it is a bit foreign to me, and that might be to do with my slightly (laughs) deprived upbringing. I mean, not deeply deprived, but just sort of generally wasn't that much joy in it. Uh, But I also just think it seems so clear to me. The motivation, the need, the desire, I feel it myself. It's so clear to me, you know, and that's where everything comes from. All sorts of conspiracy theories, or the way we buy into the monarchy, or whatever else it might be. The way we buy into football club, whatever, the way that we idolize, the way that we revere is always because of a desire for things, something to be greater than ourselves, something to be eternal, something to be magical, you know, and I know all those things exist. And I do think they create a suspicion that they are not real. And just saying, well, there are things that you want that do exist does not do away with that suspicion, especially if the thing that's been created that satisfies the want 
is completely unreachable by any form of evidential reason. Why is it that, um, and you've touched on this already with the sort of machismo of, of atheism in general, why is it that we're not allowed to say, I'd like to live forever? I mean, one person, Ricky Gervais, for example, he always says, well, I was dead before, I'll be dead again. That I, I'm more on your side with what yeah. you feel about this. Yeah. Can I just say, I always call it, I think it's machismo, but I could be wrong. You might be getting the Italian origin. I speak Spanish. Uh, yeah, okay, so is it Spanish? Is in, sp it? in Spanish, machismo. Machismo, and I think in Italian as well, actually. Oh, no, actually, no. No, because I used that to... That might be machismo. I used to speak a bit of Italian, and it's definitely chiesa is church, right? To use an <laughs> uh, opposite example. Chiesa is church, C-H-I. So in that, it would be machismo. Yeah. yeah. Anyway... <laughs> um, uh, yeah, well, what I say, there's a bit where I specifically talk about that, which is uh, atheists and others saying, well, why should you be frightened of death? You won't know you're dead. And what I say to that is, yeah, but I know it now. All right. Yeah. We, only, we can only talk about what we know now uh, in what John Updike, a Christian, called this complex interval of light. And we, and I know now that I will know nothing when I'm dead. And now that frightens me. Uh, because I like life. I do, in fact, really like, despite my depressiveness, really like life. And, uh, you know, in this argument, some, some of what the God Desire is about, and Tuesday Count was a little bit about this, but the God Desire more is like, there's very high flown conversations about this stuff. And no one's just being normal. And it's really normal to say, oh, fuck, I really don't want to be dead. Dead? Yeah. Sounds like shit. Sounds really awful. But some people, because, they get into situations where they want to be atheists or whatever else they want to be. They have to say, well, I'm, you know, it's just like before I was born. So that's fine. You see, like, it's not fine because that was a nothingness and nothingness is not inviting at all. Uh, yeah. so, no, I, I, I just think it's, I'm trying to inject a level of like all normal humanity to this conversation, I think. Yeah, that's what's missing. And that's why it was such a breath of fresh air reading that, because I don't know why we're not running around screaming every second that we're all going to die. It is no different to like a bus is about to hit us. It's just doing yeah. it slowly. And that is scares the shit out of me. Yeah. And the worst part of that is my whole sort of teenage years saying to anyone I said that to, they're like, oh, but it's fine. I don't even care. And it's like, why does no one seem to care the bus is about to hit us? Yeah, I mean, it's, I wonder if this is quite a Jewish thing, because you are Jewish and you feel it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, actually, yeah. well, one thing I try and make clear in the book, although it is quite narcissistic, this, there's an element of narcissism to it. It's an element of, like, me, I don't want me to die. It's not narcissistic at heart. At heart, it's a social thing, because what you like is life and people, other people, being part of the party. That's what's going to go when you're hit by the bus. And so I don't think it is just like, I want me, capital M, E, to exist. It's it's the whole thing, you know, that, that feels enjoyable. Uh, and it's got loads and loads of shit in it, but it's still enjoyable overall. Or it's certainly, you know, better than the alternative. That's what people say, by the way, which you probably aren't old enough to experience yet. But all these people who might say, oh, well, you know, you're fine, or you won't know, whatever. There's lots of little things in life that make it not clear that that's not really what we think. And one of them is... If I say, or if I put online, which I did the other day, that it's my birthday, and I was 59 recently, if I say I'm 59, and I sort of say, do a weary thing about it, about being old and blah, 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 people will say, it's better than the alternative, by which they mean <laughs> dead. And so, and that is true, isn't it? That's, that's just straightforwardly true. Yeah, yeah. But a bit better than 60 as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't... And I, that's not what they mean, but yeah, it is better than 60, yeah. But that doesn't help, you saying that, because 60 feels very close to 59. Yeah, it does feel quite close. How old, uh, how old are you? 30, how old are you? 34. I mean, it's interesting that you feel it so strongly. I, I felt it very strongly, actually, the book begins with me first understanding death when I was like six. And I tell this story about how my mum told me it was like a long sleep. She was trying to comfort me. <sighs> a long sleep from which you never wake. And that is one reason why I think I'm a lifelong insomnia. Is that particular <laughs> moment. Uh, and I don't like unconsciousness. I mean, I find it really difficult to fall asleep. Uh, I mean, I like the feeling of sort of waking up and I'm sleeping or whatever, but I'm being sleepy. But the general idea of unconsciousness, I clearly have a big problem with because every night I find it really hard to do that. Um, uh, so what was I now? You see, now I've forgotten something which makes me feel like it's, that's dementia. What was I talking about there? 
Um, I don't know. Yeah, neither do I. You see, that, that, happens, that happens more often to me now, where I talk about, to be fair to me, I'm talking about quite complex subjects. And so I think losing yeah. my thread is okay. Well, it, quantum physics comes up, doesn't it? It could just, could just rewind. I, mean, I, <laughs> I can't do it in the moment. You can't. But you know what? What you were getting at about the age, and because I think it was worse for me and for a lot of people in their teenage years, it's when oh, you right, first fully... I've remembered. Go on. Right. Go on. I, uh, I remember. So it was six when I, I first I first understood that we die. Mm. And I said to you, how old are you? That's what we were talking yeah. about. 34. And I said, I'm 59. So, so your point about the bus is, I think we live in a way that we think like deferring this makes it how you live with it, right? the notion of defer deferral and then you have this whole thing of like well what age oh am i not deferring it any longer is it just basically the bus is really speeding up and i'm more and more stuck because i'm old i can't move in the road right and this is this is just like a horror film now but anyway <laughs> but a lot of people would say to you i wouldn't actually but they would say to you 34 what the fuck what are you worrying mm. about but some people are born with this anxiety and some not i think I was more worried when I was a teenager because it's that teen angst stage and it's when it first yeah. fully hits you what's going to happen. It re like, You've heard it before, but it really hits you. And then you sort of learn to defer, as you say. I, I remember I talked to Professor Paul Bloom recently and he was saying, uh, trying to give me hope, I suppose. And he said, as you get older, you worry less about it, which I don't believe at all. But he was saying the first half of your life, you're basically writing your CV and your second half, you're writing your eulogy right. and you do sort of become at peace with it. And I was like, "I'm that's not going to happen. And he was like, well, you'll see. I think it will, but I don't think it will, will it? Well, Martin Amis, who recently died, said, you know, before he said, before you're 40, you basically, which is not true of you, you basically don't think about death. After 40, oh. you can't imagine you ever thought about anything else. Oh, it's a full time job looking the other way. I don't know if that's completely true because I think the human mind is very given to distraction. Uh, and that's how we get through life and death. We, we're very given to distraction. And at some level, and I'm sorry, religious people watching, that's what God is. God is a distraction from death. He's a bit more than that because he offers, you know, all sorts of other things. And by the way, I try and make this clear in the book that although I think death is at the center of it, God offers many other things as well. You know, he has a say, yeah. meaning, he offers structure, he offers a pattern. You know, I, I say he storifies life because people don't really like the idea that life is just completely chaotic and meaningless. They want to feel there's an arc to life and God absolutely provides that especially if you believe you're going to heaven for doing good things in this life I mean that's like perfect in terms of like wanting to feel that life has a journey you know rather than just it's atoms in chaotic movement yeah well that's a that's a good sort of segue to what what surprised me it was really fascinating in your book about uh, Christianity sort of got Judaism right it was a yeah. better version how, yeah. how does that work well, I actually write about this before once in my book, my novel, The Secret Purposes, but I noticed it quite a long time ago, which is partly from screenwriting, as I say in the book, there's a, there's a, a very good, slightly basic now screenwriting manual called Save the Cat, which all Hollywood screenwriters have read, which tells you how to get sympathy, uh, for your main character. And what you do to get sympathy for your main character is very early on, they do something nice, good something that helps the community or helps them save a cat or whatever else it might be. Uh, and Judaism doesn't have anyone for a start. It doesn't have a hero figure, really. It has, God is just a kind of formless, cantankerous mist that's mainly angry all the time, which, by the way, is still a projection of a kind of super parent figure, I, I think. But by the time you get to Jesus, what Christianity does, uh, you know, unconsciously, but it just does it, is it gives you a hero. A, a man who is also a god, like a superhero, who is very early doors doing a lot of saving the cat. He's raising people from the dead. He's he's putting lepers back together. He's feeding the 5,000. He's doing all these wonderful things. He's saving all sorts of cats. And then brilliantly, he sacrifices himself for our greater good. I mean, it's an unbelievably brilliant Hollywood screen arc in terms of empathy, in terms of, you know, catharticism sort of feeling upset, but also sort of nice at the end of it. I mean, that's sort of what E.T. does. That's mm. what E.T. Yeah. does. He sacrifices himself for sort of our greater good, if Elliot is us, and many other characters do that. Uh, and that's my point, is that in terms of storytelling, Christianity nailed it. And Judaism did. Judaism is just like a 
series of weird stories in which God is mainly cross. Yeah, Judaism is just seems to be, um, and obviously you and I have had our fair share of sort of reciting a lot of it over the years. Um, uh, it's sort of OCD, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, that's how I described it in the past. For people who don't know, there are 613 mitzvot, and mitzvot means kind of little laws. Some are bigger than others. Some are big laws, like don't kill people, but other laws are like, essentially, don't carry money on Shabbos, which is Saturday. You have to to fill in these things. You have to wind around your wrist, wear something on your head, wear these little things outside. Don't eat this, do eat that, say this before you eat it. I mean, it, really, it's like OCD. And actually, I've come to a realization which should have been in the book, but it came afterwards which is that the difference between Judaism and Christianity to some extent is Christianity has this massive arc towards heaven and the hereafter. Judaism is much more about this life, and that's because we are a persecuted minority, and what we want is to be okay in the moment. Like people inventing those laws are thinking, I just want to get through the day so that a Cossack doesn't kill me, or whoever it might be, or, so, or that a, someone doesn't say I've eaten a baby. I just want to get through, so maybe if I put this, I'll be safe for today. And I think that's why it's so bitty and weird compared to Christianity. I suppose the OCD bit as well, it gives you something to just do just so you can cope with life, just so you can keep going. I actually do know some OCD people who have become Orthodox Jews because I think it suits the way they think. Mm, I interviewed, I can't remember, I can't think of his name right now, which is really annoying, but he um, he's great and he writes these books where he goes like fully into subjects, um, a little John Ronson-y kind of thing. Uh, and he... Right. You should know the name of this guy. Yeah, I should know the name of this guy. And he lived life like the Old Testament for... Um, oh, for right. two years, I think it was. Um, so he just decided to do it. And it drove his wife mad. Uh, but then she started winding him up. So he'd come back and she'd be on her period and she'd say, oh, don't sit there. I've sat on all the seats just so you can't sit on them right. now. And she started to wind him up. Um, he stoned adulterers. He just went to a park and asked people if they'd, they'd cheated on anyone. He threw stones at them. Um, no, really? Yeah, yeah, he's nuts. He's great. Not only is that nuts, he's, he's in prison, surely. You have three bubbly them quite lightly. I don't know. The, apparently, the guy he threw them. I didn't like it though. Um, and he, um, yeah. he's. Would but you? he said he prayed so many times that he did start to get some. Despite being an atheist at the beginning, he's an atheist now. But he did have a moment that felt godlike or close to what it would be like to be religious. That's interesting. Well, I, I have had. I've written about this for the Jewish Chronicle. I've had since the book came out quite a few people send me uh, slightly misunderstand it. And send me books, Bibles, Qurans. I've had a few uh, books about death, whatever. I think because people feel rather lovely in a lovely way, like oh, he wants to believe in God, so we'll help him along with this. And I was in New York recently, and a woman uh, who's an Orthodox Jew was talking to me about that and about how she could show me books that would help me understand the Torah and you know get to the place where this guy presumably got to, where just incantation helped him and whatever. And that's a misunderstanding of what the God, does, God desire is, because I am using the desire to understand why I think we've created God and to write a book about it and to say this is this psychological en masse thing that makes sense to me and here's a book about it. I'm not actually interested at all in turning the desire into any kind of reality, because what I am interested in, in the end, in a very desolate way, is truth. I'm much more interested in truth than anything else, and particularly more so than comfort. I, I, if I'm not comfortable, I, if I'm frightened and sad and desolate, but it's the truth, and happier, happier is like the wrong word, but you know what I mean? I'm more me in that space than I am in the believing one. Yeah, but you know what? Is, that, is part of you saying that, because with me it would be that, is part of you saying that because you know you can't make yourself believe a thing you know not to be true. So if you could get an injection in your head that goes, now I believe in God for the next, wouldn't that give you some nice comfort? That's a brilliant question, because yesterday or the day before, I'm not really on Twitter as much as I used to be, because it's such a nuts place these days, but I'm promoting the God desire. And someone just read it, I think uh, Christian, I think someone who works in the church, uh, and they liked it, but took some issue with it. And one of the things they ended up saying was, "If well, look, if you want to believe in God, why don't you <laughs> just go and talk to some people or a rabbi and whatever, and they'll help you. And that, I mean, yes, I suppose. I don't think I would take that injection because for me, that's a type of lobotomy. That's a terrible thing to say for all the religious people watching. But I, you know, I, I don't, if I came to, if I could come to what Frank, 
feels when he t- when he takes the communion wafer. Somehow, if that happened to me, I would it would be, I guess, great. But one thing about me, which, which is perhaps clear, is I've written this book. It's an atheist book, but it talks about you know uh, the desire for God, and it's quite respectful compared to a lot of other books about religion because I understand what it means. And I'm also, by the way, Jewish, and, and most atheists are not part of any kind of minority. Certainly not one associated with religion. So I know how it's part of your identity. But I think that it's the, like, it's a really deeply atheist book. I actually say at one point, I think that I believe myself to be much more of an atheist than Richard Dawkins. Uh, because Richard Dawkins, I think at one point in the God Delusion says, you can't actually prove. It's a very philosopher thing. You can't actually prove the non-existence of something. Um, so he can't, he has to have a sort of space in his mind or whatever. I don't care about any of that bollocks. I, I basically know that God doesn't exist. I, I know it. Uh, I do say in the book, I know it like I know that stone is hard. And because I'm a playful writer, about a chapter later, I say, of course, stone isn't hard. Stone is just a series of energies held together by magnetism that we perceive as hard. But I do know it. <laughs> I, I absolutely know it. I love those bits, can I just say? I love those parts. There are so many parts. There are parts where you say something and then you go... Although actually, and there's like the quantum mechanics <laughs> explanation, and I love that because I didn't, I, it wouldn't have crossed my mind. I loved it. Um, well, someone has said, this woman called Devorah Baum, who's a close friend of mine who's religious, has written a, a book at the moment on marriage, but her previous books about Jewish comedy and whatever. She's an academic. She said the way that I write in these books is Talmudic. <laughs> and I think it is a bit because if you actually read the Talmud, which of course I fucking haven't, but I have a sense of it. <laughs> It's it's a rabbi. It's very OCD. It's a rabbi saying, when should we light the first candle of the Shabbos? And then another rabbi, like a voice in my head or whatever, says, well, I think it should be this because the Bible says this. And another rabbi says, no, no, it should be this. Blah, blah, blah. And it's lots and lots of competing arguments. It's a bit like Twitter <laughs> in its own way. Uh, and I think I do think of it like that. I think of something and I think, well, what's the undercutting of that? Yeah, and it's it's great. And quantum mechanics as well, we should say, that's that's one of the things you point out as like a replacement that some people have for God. Uh, and you find that, I guess, in like movies about UFOs or whatever, like anything like that is like, well, maybe they've got a way and we can live forever. Because I, I just yeah. really... The universe is the thing most of all. The multiverse and that, that amazing... The I love that film. Um, and I know you said it's the, it can use some uh, easy ways of getting out of scripts and things, but um, and everything else everywhere was i just loved it, it so funny. everything ever was i loved it too yeah i did love it I, the ending i had a problem with the ending which felt very kind of sentimental and hokey and as i say in the film in the book it's slightly like at the end of the day you just have to make things things right with your loved ones yeah it is i mean yeah fair enough yeah. but that's uh, uh for a film like that it felt like it was a slight uh withdrawal of what they were trying to say but i i really loved it in general but- those um, movies like that I, that try and take you to like this different place they're always going to let you down at the end like Interstellar I think is one of my favourite ever ever movies but it doesn't quite hold together at the end because it couldn't possibly yeah. do it because the thing it's trying to show we don't even know yeah. what that is yes well the thing it's trying to show the way that we have to imagine the multiverse and by the way I am not a con- <laughs> I'm fascinated by quantum physics I obviously don't you wrote a play about it I've written a play about it yeah I'm really fascinated by it and I know more about it than nobody than like people who don't know about it at all but I'm not a physicist and as I, and here's the thing I wrote a play about it and I watch those movies and I read these books because I'm trying to get an imagination of say the multiverse but the multiverse is not imaginable what it is is maths it's maths and it's a mathematical explanation for something that we're really baffled by which is an electron and many other subatomic particles seemingly can be in any place at once until they're observed. Infinite amount of places. Now, if they're in infinite places, then one way of explaining that is every particle is always in an infinite other place. Therefore, there are billions of universes. But that's just math. And I don't, I actually don't believe it. Like I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the way that Hollywood is sometimes trying to tell us that there's actually, you know, right next to ours and again and again. Another, we're having this conversation, me and you, David and Andrew Gold, but it's slightly different. <laughs> uh, and I've got a slightly different shirt yeah. on. Oh, I, don't, I don't really believe that. And what I do believe is, yes, it's another version of the God desire, much cleverer and with some mathematical basis. But the way we imagine it is a way of thinking we don't die because there are other versions of us. Yeah, which still is that Shakespearean thing, isn't it? I live in, I live on through another, but it's not, you're not experiencing it, even if there were a billion other yous, which I agree with you. I don't even think that, it, that, that I don't believe that. But 
you, you know what does bring some comfort to me? I've been thinking about this recently is, so you, there's obviously a lot of work on living forever and stuff like that, which, you know, they're going to cure the body or whatever with AI, they might be able to do it. Who knows? But somebody once yeah. said to me um, that one more likely one is that we'll be able to get sort of into virtual reality and they'll be able to slow down our minds or speed them up, I, should, I think, to such an extent that we experience time in that virtual world incredibly quickly or slowly or whatever it is so that the, the, the 70 year or 80 90 year lifespan feels like thousands and thousands of years to us so i've got my hopes up about that what's the thing to get your hope, uh, hopes up about because what you're essentially saying is i'd like to live in a universe in which i'm like this and everything's going really no, but i'm slowly. in the virtual reality so i in my in the virtual reality things are going fast and i'm just like asleep in a in a bed here but it's right. like Inception. So in the virtual reality, I'm living days and days and days, but in real life, only a second has passed. Right. I mean, you know you can do that. What? Now. Not not now. <laughs> you can't do it now. But you could do it now if you could travel at the speed of light. So you know about that, right? Rather than AI, there is a way of doing that. So one of the things, and I think one of the reasons, it's definitely to do with mortality that I'm fascinated by this. If uh, twins were, let's say, one twin stays on the Earth, they're 20, another twin goes off on a rocket and goes around the universe at the speed of light, comes back on our world 40 years later, the twin is 60, the person coming off the rocket will be about a year older, or whatever, the math thing. Yeah, but the problem with that is that the person, it's your, about your experience time, and the person who's gone on the rocket has still experienced the amount of, you know, he'll still die after 90 yeah. years of his no, no, experience that's time. That's true. Uh, and we'll probably die before that because travelling at the speed of light is very, I think, probably bad for you. Uh, but, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but they get to go to the future. I don't really understand your AI thing, I'll be honest with you. I, I haven't really understood it, so I can't get excited about it and feel comforted by it. And also, well, just trust me. Just trust me, we're going to live forever. Well, also, my worry about this, whenever anyone says something like this, is I think, actually, my dad said this one. When I was quite young, um, like about 20 or something, my, I was with my dad and we were watching telly and he was probably even, he was probably younger than me. He was probably like just in late forties or something. And there was something on the telly about how whatever the advance was that it was a long time ago. So it might have been very something that's now come and gone would mean that we would live longer. But he watched it. And at the end of the news report, as tends to happen with medical stuff, it said this won't be available for a number of years, blah, 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 but scientists are hopeful. And my dad just said, Oh, that's typical. I've missed the boat again. Meaning, <laughs> I am too old now for it to affect me, so I'll just be dead. And I think that yeah. whenever I hear someone say, oh, they're developing something, which blah, 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 which means you can live till 200. I think, like, yeah, I've missed that, haven't I? That's, that's Maybe. Not- I have. I, I think I have. I mean, having said that, AI is going very quickly. But yeah. but one thing I don't think either of us buy, do we, is uploading ourselves. To no, AI. no. Because we won't really be experiencing that. I mean, we'll have a log. There might be a log you know, blinking lights, uh, and they yeah. generate your handsome face uh, there. And that could happen. That could definitely happen. They could generate a version of you, but you're not feeling that. You're not experiencing no. it. You're dead. So No. It's such a shame that that's not, that's not a thing. Yeah. My virtual reality thing so is the only way, but I'll have to explain it to you properly now because I don't want to sort yeah. of you know, go too far into the week. Yeah. <laughs> Because yeah. we've only got a certain right. amount of time left. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can plug it in now, you've probably got time to explain it. <laughs> We'd have ages. We'd have so long. Oh, they've got to do it. And, and the thing is, at the back of my head, that is happening. Like, I'm never going to die. And I'm not entirely sure why, but I think it's probably going to have something to do with virtual right. reality. That's true anyway. I mean, it's not true, but it is true. Uh, in the sense that I think they, humans find it very, very difficult to imagine their own death. Um, so I, that Damien Hurst, Scott Sharp thing, uh, is called something like the imagination of death in the mind of someone living because it's so hard for humans to actually imagine that they are going to die. So even though we know it, and even though we might see death and fear and experience it in all sorts of other ways, we sort of think we're, it's not going to happen to us. Uh, and actually when it does happen to you, by the way, so I can tell you this, when like things start, start to go obviously wrong with your body, that doctors don't say, well, we can fix this because you've just, they basically say, yeah, that's because you're old. That's, you, that's, you're living with that now, that thing in your leg or, you know, that thing with your eyes. Like my eyes are the most telling thing. I'll, I'll get loads of other ones, but I can no longer read up close. 
my uh, this happened to me about 10 years ago is like it got worse more blur and more blurry and now i need reading glasses if i can and i don't know where they are that's probably also because i'm old i never know where they are right i'm not going to have them around my neck because i'm not jenny murray right so i have to I, i'm almost entirely read via audiobook now which actually bring i mean this is very twee but it does bring with it certain joys like i really like books read by certain actors now and i can walk about and listen to books which i never did before but as Nora Ephron, who wrote When Harry Met Sally, says in her brilliant book about aging, uh, I think she's, it's called The Problem With My Neck or what's, what's Wrong With My Neck, she says that as someone who reads is so used to being able to pick up a newspaper or pick up a book and just read it, not being able to do that anymore is like a deep dislocation of personality. That feels like I'm becoming someone else. And that, is, that just happens. I'm worried you're not on in their droves. They're thinking, this is the most depressing Andrew Gold on the edge we've ever had. Last week was a woman um, who um, whose father did awful things to her with okay. with his friends. Okay, that's worse. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I hope everyone's enjoying I, the podcast. Well, <laughs> now we've brought that up. Now this is on an equal level. Well, last time you came on, I remember now, we talked about the, the guy who had to eat his friends because he had been left on a... This is what I'm dealing with, David, every day doing this. I'm interviewing utterly depressing... It's just your job, Andrew. I mean, I'm, I sound, oh. that sounds like a diss, but I didn't mean it. I, like, yeah, yeah. sources of income. It's, this is my full-time, full-time job. Okay. I, I think you should be on the telly. You're very good. Oh, thank you. That's so nice of you to say. Well, I'm going on GB News tomorrow, but that's about oh. the only thing I can get on. Oh, God. I know. Is that okay. You, you should know, be hosting a show because, for a start, you are telegenic. Secondly, you, you're good. And, uh, you know, I mean, I say all this, like, I'm obviously analog here. I'm from a world in which being on the telly feels like a thing you might want to be, but you're on screen on the internet, and that's probably just. Well, the thing. YouTube makes more money than I, got, than I got from TV. So that's more than I ever expected. Because when I start, you don't get into this for the money. You'd be a YouTuber, you know? So that's been amazing. And I get to hang out and meet people like you. And then when it's your own show instead of the TV producers, it's like I get to be friends with you. I mean, sometimes I feel like, oh, does John Ronson really like me? I think he might not like me. Uh, but I, I got to hang out with Robbie Williams the other... I went out to Barcelona to just hang out with Rob... And I'm, I'm a huge Robbie Williams fan. And so that's what you get from the... Whereas if it was on TV, I wouldn't get to be like... I like you know, Robbie, I I, well, I know John, and I think you've, I'm going to say he does like you. I, I've never spoken about you. Can you ask him and tell me? I can, if you like. Um, <laughs> he's, he's very nice, John. Uh, Robbie, I've met loads of times. He's always been very, very friendly. I wouldn't describe myself as a friend of his because he's been very friendly, but we've never really hung out properly. He asked me to write a film once, uh, uh, which I think is happening, uh, about him, a sort of semi-comedy biopic about him, but I, I didn't do it. Um, He's got one coming out now. Yeah, I think that's it. That may be the one. Um, wait, we've got ten more. We've got ten more minutes. Okay, all right, I'm going to have some more coconut water. One ninety nine. Oh, there you go. Look at that. I can't believe I achieved. I'm going to get some of that. Um, my fiance is going to kill me because she edits this. She's my editor, and she's going to have to like. Is she, listen? is she listening? She will be listening when she's editing it. Oh, she's not listening now. No, I don't have that kind of. Last setup. time she, she was just your girlfriend, and now she's your fiance. Ah, so you remember stuff. That's quite nice that you remember that. Yeah, we're getting married next year. So you proposed. Yeah, like like half a year ago, I did the whole th thing. I just, you know got a ring and all all that stuff. Did you get on, down on one knee? No, when we we I <laughs> in a very not me kind of thing. We got we I rented an Airbnb. She likes her privacy. It was very private, no one around. But there was a hot tub, and I, I got in the hot tub and and did, got the ring out, and she was she was quite happy. It sounds lovely. It sounds lovely. I have to say, it also sounds quite as you say, not you. <laughs> no, <laughs> I know, and, and not and not her. As a sort of hot tub kind of guy, necessarily, but hey. <laughs> I know, I know. But you know what? It was this beautiful Airbnb and it had a hot tub and we nope. were in there and it was the evening. And I've got a sauna in my house. I built a, during lockdown, I built, it wasn't me, obviously, it was a company uh, called Finmark. I'll mention them. Uh, they built it out of this shed I've got in, in my house. They built a sauna. Oh, I like all that. Yeah. I, like, I like things like saunas and hot tubs and whatnot. Yeah, they're lovely. They love, that's what it's all about. And, and you know, the, the bit that, that maybe was more me was I realised when we were in the hot tub, I was going to go and have to get it and I had to have a reason. Right. So I had to say I needed the toilet. And the toilet is usually code for number two, not number one for us, because I would just say I'm going to go and have a wee. So I was like, I'm going to go to the toilet. And she was like, oh, okay. You really need to go? And I was like, oh, uh, 
well it no maybe just let me just see and i had to go inside very funny water everywhere but you know it's one of these things you imagine it in your head but then the reality was like dripping of water do you think she like didn't realize didn't quite put it together that, that it was a lie so that when you actually got the ring out and proposed she thought this is very nice but he just had a shit <laughs> or like do you mean like shawshank or something and that's where i've got it from. that's why i've hidden it <laughs> Just that she hadn't put it together that it was a lot about the toilet. <laughs> I, th I think she she was a bit suspicious. And you've got that thing where it's a, you know what I actually I didn't like it, and now looking back, I like it. I like that we've been together nine years, and we're very chilled, and, and that's not very us. And you have this moment where suddenly you're both acting like like you're actors in the play right. of your life. Yes, and yeah. it is awkward and weird, but yeah. maybe it's nice to look back and say we had nine years of us just being ourselves, and there was a few hours and where we, we both sort of no, that acted. I agree. That is. That's true, and at least you didn't do it like in public, like people can. Like Ugh. I remember someone doing it at half time on the pitch at Chelsea. Everyone, literally, the whole crowd was just shouting at the woman, "Say no!" <laughs> <laughs> That's the funnier thing. <laughs> oh God! You did well, hot tub. Football is um, football's one of those things that we replace with uh, God with to an extent, isn't it? And so I'm a Spurs fan. Uh, you're you're a Chelsea fan isn't it mad the tribal the the, the tribes and the, how we start to hate each other i mean i don't hate you for being a chelsea fan but no. you know what i mean and, and that that is also i mean i see that with religion and, and, and atheism as, yeah, well, as well I maybe again like if i was to write a slightly longer version of the book i would talk about this as well um which i don't when i talk about what god because it's more about what god provides than what religion provides and i think religion is slightly different god provides as i say a way out of death a way of thinking about the world that feels nicer and proper and more meaningful. Religion provides something else, which is tribalism and, you know, identity, I guess. And, you know, seems to be very important to us to feel like I'm part of a community. I'm part of a thing with colors and songs and slogans and mantras and all the rest of it. And the unfortunate thing about that is that we tend to set those things up oppositionally. So it tends to be like, I'm part of this thing, so I hate that thing. And you know why that is, because it solidifies our sense of belonging, right? And our sense of identity. And we've made that 5,000 times worse with social media, because now everyone was proclaimed that they are an anti-vaxxer or whatever else it might be, uh, you know, one of a million things that you see online. And to say that, they have to hate whoever it is who is not who they th they, they are. And yeah, but football is a version of that. It can be benign, but it, as we know, it could also be very not benign. Yeah. I think my early memories as a child sort of coming to grips, you know, I went to the Sunday school, Hebrew school or whatever, Heda we call it, uh, and did the prayers and stuff. But the only times I, I ever sort of tried to pray as a kid, ever, 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 was at Tottenham sort of just like sort of towards the end of a game, please just let them score God. Like how ridiculous and narcissistic of me to believe that, that God cares about what happens with Tottenham. And it def I think maybe had they then actually won anything my entire life, maybe I would believe a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because God in that case, clearly supports Manchester city. That, <laughs> that's the theological thing that we have to come back to. Um, I mean, I've done that too. You know, people are like, that's the question people have asked me quite a lot since this book came out is, have you ever prayed? And I have, well, not since I was very young and, and went to an Orthodox Jewish primary school. I haven't, but I have said out loud, oh, I, yeah, I, I really hope this penalty goes in, uh, whatever else it might be. But also serious stuff, like my daughters, I've talked about this publicly, my daughters had an eating disorder. I've said out loud that I want her to get better, but I don't, I actually don't think I'm praying to a god. I think I'm saying something which feels to me like I can't contain it within silence, within just my head, and I need to just vocalize it. And that doesn't mean that I think there's an actual spirit out there that's going to have an effect because I've said that, because as you say, that's deeply narcissistic. The idea that God is listening is deeply narcissistic. It comes from a need, and the need is we have to be witnessed. We have to be parented at almost all times. I talk a lot in, early on in the book about how we are all children, how old we get, we are children. And one of the things we need as children is to feel that our parents are somehow there doing our wishes, listening to us, making it better. And they're not there anymore once you're not a child or if they're dead. And so therefore, again, we need to have a replacement for that. God is that. God's a super parent. People always say in my comments, and I'm sure it's said to you a lot, you sound more like an agnostic. You're an agnostic. And I go, because I've sometimes said like what you said Dawkins has written, you know, 
well, I, I can't prove anything. I don't know any, you know, yeah. but I'm very much, I identify, if I identify, you know, an atheist. Yeah. But people keep saying, why do they want me and want you and want I us think to be agnostic? atheist is a bad word. Um, hmm. You know, one of the really interesting things about writing a book about it is that I think about halfway through, I try and confront like, you know, is it worth writing this? Because surely no one believes in God anymore properly. And it's not true. They do. Uh, 80% of people in America say they believe in God. I read at one point the one thing about everything that, that an, a presidential candidate can never be is an atheist. It's a self-professed atheist. Still thought for the day, the UK's kind of wisdom thing that gets us off, you know, to work or wherever it is, thinking about life can only be done by a religious person. They still never had not even a humanist or an agnostic on it, let alone an atheist on it. It's sort of a bad word. And I think people don't want to think that. I think there's a niceness to it. I think people who think you might be punished for your opinions or whatever, go to hell. They would rather you, you toned it down a bit because they, because they care, they care about you. But I'll give you an example of how that is not the case for me is there's an awkwardness to it as well. So like I got interviewed for. There's a BBC TV religious program, Sunday morning. It might be called something. Songs of no, no, Praise not, or something. No, Songs of Praise. Uh, it's a more slightly more up-to-date thing like, than that. It's not just people in Falmouth singing on the key. <laughs> I don't even know what it is. Uh, no, I, that's what Songs of Praise is. I don't, think, I don't even know if it exists anymore. But no, this is a more modern program. And like a very nice guy who's on, who was on Strictly called Sean Fletcher. He presents it. Really nice guy. He came here to my office to chat about the, the God desire. And, and we're having a nice conversation about it. And he says he's read the book and, it, and some of it spoke to him and whatever. But then he says, so I read your book and, you know, like many things, it did make me think. And, and I have doubts, he said, as a Christian. I have doubts. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I think, you know, yeah, I really doubt the existence of God. And he said, and you as an atheist, you must have doubts about your way of thinking. I just said, no. No, I don't. And I really don't. I mean, I really don't. I think one reason I don't is that some people have said to me, and I haven't even thought about this, is, uh, well, we create God, you know, as I said in my thing, for like, because people want this, they want that. And then some people said, but some, for some people, God is terrifying. You know, he's a judgment figure. Uh, I haven't really thought about that, although I do talk about how in, in the book I say that a parent can be extremely angry and all the rest of it and vicarious or whatever. And I think that notion of judgment is, like important in the way that, that someone like him is, is talking because as I say that he's, he's worried about hell and that's part of his doubts and all the rest of it. But I'm not worried about any of it except oblivion. That's what I'm worried about. So I can't meet anyway. The point is I cannot meet, um, believers in the middle talking about agnosticism or whatever else, even humanism. I don't, there's a book in the bit in the book where I say, no, I'm not really a humanist. Um, I, I was only doesn't believe in God. And I'm not that bothered about how we create a society. That's what humanism is without God and relying on human. I mean, you know, it's, it's nice. I'm fine with it, but I wouldn't identify as that because what I'm identifying is as someone who believes, I mean, it's slightly ridiculous to identify as an atheist, isn't it? Cause it's like, it's just, it's not, it's, it is a belief system, but at some level it isn't because it's just about not accepting another belief system. Yeah. It, I, it almost doesn't. We, I almost only have to use the word atheism to negate somebody else's identity. It's not my idea. You know, it's like, if you didn't think this thing, I wouldn't even have to, It's just I'm living and breathing and stuff. I'm not think, it's not even... A that is why, and I spent a lot of time in the book talking about this, that's why atheism is so unfashionable now. It was sort of fashionable just before social media, and now it's deeply unfashionable because negating someone else's construction of reality or their identity is really considered bad now and sort of punching down and whatever else it might be. And so that's deeply problematic because... If you believe in some kind of objective truth, which is a really hard thing in itself now to, to justify that such, such a thing exists, but I think there are objective truths. The earth is round. The earth goes around the sun. Those are objective truths, right? If you believe that there is objective truth, then you have to be able to say things that might contradict other people's reality. And one of them might be God doesn't exist. That contradicts a lot of people's realities. But unfortunately now, if you do that, you're accused either of punching down or people get angry or whatever, rather than, you know, allowing all things to be said in a multifarious world. What's the, the most positive th thing you could ever think that you've ever thought? Me, in general? Yeah, just you. Get, say something positive. Well, I don't know if this is positive, but this got a big laugh the other day. And, and you'll know that this is a spoiler, but the book ends having spent a long time 
trying to find an upside to this and failing, it points <laughs> it in laughter. It says there's one thing we can do in the face of all this. Uh, and that is laugh. There's always laughter because if it is absurd, if it is meaningless, if we have constructed this mad thing to sort of help us out of it, maybe it's funny. And we're the only animals that have laughter and that's something. But the other day, at Hay, the Hay Literary Festival, uh, a woman said to me, well, what would be your epitaph on your gravestone? I said, well, based on my intense fear of what lies beyond, I would like it to be, I was wrong. <laughs> and that seems to be positive. Yeah, well, that is positive. And you were wrong about the laughing, I think. And you said the next line, didn't you? I think some monkeys can laugh. Yes, of course, of course I immediately contradicted it. <laughs> pretty sure I've seen monkeys laughing when they're throwing shit. Uh, there's quite a lot in the book about shit, about like <laughs> the idea that only animals that feel shame in defecating, which is why you felt a slight type of shame when you got out of the hot tub. Because you, uh, now we have to include that story. She, oh, you must include that story. Please include that story. It's, it's okay. It's beautiful. It's really <laughs> endearing. And if your wife to be is okay with it, I think you should include it. But also, it's interesting that you felt a slight shame that, you, that she might have thought that because my whole thing in the book, I come to the conclusion, which I've come through many times before, that, you know, we are animals. That's what yeah. we are. We're animals. We happen to have certain intellectual and linguistic facilities that other animals don't have, but otherwise we're just animals. And yeah. everything that we've created in this imaginary world to make us think other, otherwise, that's what it is. It's yeah. stuff to make us think that we are higher and different and more special than the animals. That's why you, not feel, that's why you should not feel shame about possibly <laughs> needing a shit in the heart. <laughs> I think we are better than animals, though, because I just think we're, we're the best animal. And I know everyone always says, like, oh, have you? What about the dolphin? Dolphins are so intelligent. It's like, come on. Like, we're really good. We're, we're pretty good, aren't we? Yeah, we are the most amazing animals. Uh, Morwenna, my wife, a long time ago, wrote a script called Magic Monkeys. And said, that's what we are. We are, the, you know, we can do things that they yeah. can't do. But I, I mean, you know, I'm an original thinker, right? You, you know this. I'm going to end with the least original thought I've ever had which is, we are the most amazing animal. We're also the most terrible animal. We yeah. do much, much more terrible things than any animal has ever done. And that's including the ones who rip apart and other animals. They're just doing <laughs> that for food. And they're just doing yeah. that for food, uh, which is, we do terrible things for all sorts of shit reasons that aren't just for that. So yeah, we're the most amazing animals and the most terrible ones. Which is a slightly unreal. Every, but there we are. No, I think well, it's still a good point though, and it, it needs to be. We need to remind people of that. I think, and I think we should also remind people to go out and get the God Desire, which is it's actually a really funny book because David goes back and forward so much on it, and you, it does make you laugh. Uh, so it's it's not you know all doom and gloom. It is doom and gloom, but it's very very funny. There's got more jokes in it than Jews don't count. Yeah, in terms <laughs> of my essay book brand. So yes, please, yeah. please. Don't think I'm not buying that. It sounds depressing. Thank you, David Bedil, so much for coming on the show. What a pleasure it was to talk to him. I hope you guys really enjoyed listening. I could just sit and chat with him for hours. It was such a pleasure. Uh, go out in your droves and get the God Desire. Even if you're religious, whether you are, whether you're not, it's an intriguing read and he really isn't anti-religion. Uh, it's just about his particular beliefs and he's not trying to convert you to his brand of atheism. It's a great book. Get that thing lots of big episodes as i say coming up we've got anka richter or anka richter talking about her journey into the the world of sex cults uh, and we've got a few other big and interesting ideas and things coming up so stick around for those things and have a lovely week everyone <laughs>